six months in, again, the same, same chief exec said to me, so look, your, your team are very expensive. But he said, right, you've got six months to turn that cost ratio around or else they're all out. Welcome to Career View Mirror, the automotive podcast that goes behind the scenes with key players in the industry, looking back over their careers so far, sharing insights to help you with your own journey. I'm your host, Andy Fox. Carl Anders, listeners. Carl is leading on external and government affairs for Complio Charging Solutions UK and is also the managing director of EV consultancy DEFCON 27 Limited. Carl was the CEO, board director and founder of Energy E-Mobility UK, the E.ON-owned subsidiary that specialised in supplying advanced electric vehicle charging hardware and software technology from 2018 up until the company was purchased by Complio in December 2021 and renamed. Carl joined Energy E-Mobility from Nissan GB, where he held the role of National EV Manager Corporate Sales. He's previously held positions with the Energy Saving Trust and General Motors and has been in the automotive industry for 30 years in the UK and overseas. In our conversation, we talk about his entry into and progression through the automotive industry, his relative early exposure to electric vehicles, and how they became a focus for him, and in one role at least, provided a differentiator and a key sense of purpose for the team he was leading. I'm pleased to be able to introduce you to Carl as one of the early champions of our transition to electrification, and look forward to hearing what resonates with you. This episode of Career View Mirror is brought to you by the Aquilae Academy. At the Academy, we turn individual development into a team sport. We bring together small groups of leaders from non-competing organisations to form their very own academy team. We build strong connection between team members and create a great environment for sharing and learning. We introduce the team to content that can help them tackle their current challenges and we hold them accountable to take the actions that they decide are their priorities. We say, we hold our team members' feet to the fire of their best intentions. We do this internationally with teams across the world. If you'd like to learn more about the Academy, go to www.aquili.co.uk. Hello, Carl, and welcome. And where are you coming to us from today? Good afternoon, Andy. I'm coming from you from uh, just outside of Woodstock in Oxfordshire, which is in the Cotswolds, central Britain beautiful part of the country thank you very much for joining me carl where did your journey start where did you where were you born where did you grow up i was born in a place called wollongong new south wales so it's about an hour south of sydney it's famous over there for being a steel town so if you can imagine what sheffield on the sea would look like um that's where i'm originally from but i did mainly grow up in sydney i see sheffield with sharks (laughs) um so tell us a little bit about your childhood, please. Carl, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I've got a younger brother and a younger sister. My younger brother lived over here in Britain for oh, 20 years up in Scotland. Um, he's uh, he's back in Australia now. Uh, he's an operations manager. And I've got a sister who works in uh, more in sort of uh, disabled children for the government. And she lives actually not far north of Gosford. That way. Right, right. And are you, so you were the eldest? Were you? Were they both younger? Yes. 
So were your parents Australian or were they, had they emigrated out there? What What's the story? My mum is actually First Fleet descendant, so so am I. So we actually have a forebearer who first went to Australia on a boat um, below deck in chains after being convicted in Colchester Crown Court. So we're on one side very English-Australian, but my father's from Fotsheim, so he's from Germany, hence the German name. So I'm actually a German citizen, um, but they all emigrated in the late 40s. The family decided they didn't want to be in in Germany um, in the late 40s, the period after 1945. Right. It's interesting to have that heritage, to know about your your mother's side with someone coming over, not necessarily by choice. Um, That was, uh, yeah, it's colourful, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Um, And you didn't have to do it that much to to get yourself a ticket, I don't think, on those terms. (laughs) I've seen some of the the reasons people went. You'd think, oh, that was not not a huge crime. But uh, we won't dive into it. That's going a bit too far back even for me. But um, I always ask my guests what their parents did so that they I understand what sort of jobs they had sight of when they were growing up. So I'll ask you the same. What were your mum and dad doing? Well, mum was uh, well technically a homemaker, but wasn't. She uh, tended to have several jobs at once. Um, she did all sorts of things from mainly sort of accounting, um, secretarial type things, um, but it got right down to sort of cleaning yacht clubs and all sorts of things. So um, that's what mum did. So she was always flat out working the entire time when we were all growing up. Uh, my dad, when I started, was a trainee engineer in the steelworks. Uh, he worked his way right up to operations manager um, of a major part of the steelwork. So he used to do six days a week up to sort of uh, well, up to 18 hours a day. So I didn't see much of him either. Um, so both of them were flat out working and uh, it was great. I got smuggled into, into steelworks a few times. So I got to see industry up close. It, it is a massive steelworks. So a German engineer father and uh, yeah, mother Australian and doing absolutely everything she could running businesses. She had a, um, a like a, a serviced office business at one point in Avalon where we grew up. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a great, it was a great place to grow up, but uh, everybody was flat out working. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a common denomination. A lot of hard work going on that you saw, saw how hard they were working. And we have a good proportion of our listeners there in Australia and we'll know the sort of places, you know, know, know what you're talking about. As you were, uh, you don't have, but we'll come on to sort of when you move, because you, you don't have a strong accent at all, Carl, from, from Australia. But you went to school there, presumably. And tell us a little bit about that. What, what were your impressions of school days? Oh, I had a great time at school, I must admit. Um, some people enjoy it, some don't. Uh, but I think it came from my parents a lot. So as I said, I was born and bred in Wollongong, but I went to school in a place called Fig Tree. So... I enjoyed myself. I had a great time. I got um, the cane corporal punishment way too often, but also at school, I sort of focused on work quite a bit. So uh, my first job, I was actually a 12 year old sort of thing, which would probably be illegal now, but uh, finished school onto a bus into the middle of Wollongong, took about 30, 40 minutes. This is at 12, mind you. Join up with Milkman, jump into the back of Milk Truck, open one. Um, and then he would then drive 20, 25 minutes out to Berkeley and I would literally deliver milk for a milkman for about an hour after school, then get a bus back to Fig Tree, which is probably another 30, 40 minutes as well. And my 
my first salary was uh, I remember it going from one dollars to two dollars a week, which is the equivalent of fifty p to one p to one pound. And that was literally hanging off the back of a moving milk truck and getting bitten by dogs. As you say, probably not uh, not allowable now. But fascinating <laughs> how many of my guests, or certainly a good number of my guests, had early jobs. Started out working pretty early. All right, let's find out why. Just if there's anything yeah. interesting in there, particularly. You say you got the cane probably a bit more than you should have done. So, w- was that um, just because you were having a lot of fun, or were you were you testing some boundaries? I think I think probably a little bit of both. Um, so, despite coming from Wollongong, when I was well, for about fourteen, we moved to the northern beaches of Sydney. And if you've ever seen Home and Away, that's actually shot exactly where I grew up. My father still lives there looking over the beach there so summer bay doesn't exist it's called palm beach so i think i just grew up at a a very very state school uh with a lot of people who'd been thrown out of private schools and we just we were just in a nice place it was sunny it was hot we didn't really see the use of boundaries so we just enjoyed ourselves literally as much as we could okay and in terms of academic subjects did you have a preference at that stage it's a funny one. If it, if it was a subject that I was interested in, I tended to do very, very well. If it was a subject that I didn't do very well in, I tended to not do very well. I think I'm the only person who's ever got 0% in, a, in an exam uh, in year 10. Woodwork. I kind of approached it from a comedy angle. So, so I guess for what you'd call your, is that the O-levels? Yeah. Questions like, um, what is a chamfer? My answer being a South African traffic policeman. Second question, what is a curf? My answer, his loyal dog. Things like that. Um, so I tended to like the sciences, but less things like woodwork, etc. Right. Um, and I did get banned from from cooking for burning my socks once. Right. I don't I'm not gonna ask what that was. <laughs> What you were hoping to achieve from that? What recipe involved your socks? But uh, so the sciences you liked, and when you came towards the end of school, how clear were you on what sort of direction you wanted to go in? I was quite direct. I always wanted because my grandfather on the Australian side was ex um, Australian Air Force. I always wanted to be a pilot. Always wanted to be a fighter pilot, and I think that's probably why I focused more on the sciences, etc. Because it was my way of becoming a fighter pilot. That's what I wanted to do with the Australian Air Force. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Australia, where there's the bombing of Darwin, uh, my grandfather was actually there for that. So, um, yeah, so I always wanted to be a pilot. That's what I wanted to do. That's why I did all the science subjects. Right, right. And I know you didn't become, well, certainly, um, no, you're not a pilot now. So what happened there? Yeah, I guess teenage boy goes to university, has a great time decides that the, the military is probably going to be a little bit of a a little bit of a limit on my um, on my social life. So when it came up to university time, I then went to the University of New South Wales, which is in Sydney, and I focused on economics. So that's what my major is economics, and I had a great time and decided I would prefer to go into the car industry. Right. So yes, I'm just thinking with you saying that boundaries, you know, you and your pals were uh, not not necessarily following boundaries the air force might have been a little limiting for that <laughs> yeah. uh, for those preferences so you chose instead to study economics at the university of new south wales and 
then as you were coming out of university what uh, what thoughts were you having then around how to uh, get into the workplace uh, the university I went to, surprisingly, considering my um, academic lack of bent through high school, I did actually get into a really good university. So towards the end of that time, you had all the rounds so people like Citibank and that would come in and interview. And that, actually, they're probably a good example because there's probably about two and a half thousand applicants and they were going to take on, I think, eight across the country. And we got right down to, I think got right down to the final 12. Um, and then they decided... Uh, at the time uh, to only take about four. So I didn't go to Citibank. So there's a lot of banking companies, a lot of accounting, things like that. Didn't strike me as fun. And then an advertisement was out to join the marketing department of Hyundai Australia. So I thought, well, this sounds like a bit of fun, join the car industry. Um, So I went for the interviews, got right through, and I was appointed marketing analyst starting the day after my very last exam. Great. Straight after finishing exams. So in terms of work ethic, no let up from from studying into into a job. And how was the experience of working there? Hyundai Australia in the 80s was great fun. Although if you look at the model range we had at the time, um, we had basically like the old Hyundai Pony, as it was called over here. So some of the cars were, shall we say, not cutting edge. It wasn't selling Maseratis or BMWs. And it was in a market that was really dominated by big V6 and six-cylinder Fords and Holdens, which are like Vauxhalls. And we had these, uh, shall we say, not quite reliable, not quite fast, not quite comfortable cars that we were then trying to sell in the UK market, which was which was hard, but but we had a lot of fun. We really did. And that was in Australia, though, was it still? Yes, yeah. Hyundai yeah. Australia. Yeah, that was my yeah. very, very first employer. You learn a lot from selling brands that don't necessarily sell themselves. How long did you stay there doing that for? I was there about two years, and um, it, it was in marketing, but I also got into dealer operations. So we had one or two people leave. So I crossed over, and I, I got on very, very well with the guy doing dealer operations. So I then became drafted into being basically his assistant on the dealer plan so when it got a little bit hard trying to sell very very bad cars um i could have some fun playing with maps of dealers and which ones should be terminated etc that was it was was great fun two years and it was a really really great place to start it really was the frontier Um, we didn't have mobile phones we didn't have much in the way of it it was pretty much and there were times we were doing things with rulers and pens yes yeah, that's uh, the the what would you say the the vintage of some of my guests that does come up from time to time uh, with some wry smiles about how things were done. So I'm always interested, Carl, in the transition. So that's an interesting one already that you uh, got close to the dealer operations um, person in the in the organisation, and that opened up an opportunity for you. When it came to moving on, what what was the next transition? <laughs> that that's actually quite closely related so uh david stud who was the uh, head of dealer ops at the time for hyundai i was working with him and then he got headhunted off to toyota australia and toyota were quite were quite big they're one of the big three at the time to go and do their network because uh his great plan which was novel in the in the 80s was um instead of just saying okay let's get as many dealers out there as possible it was very much let's get a good dealer but Let's get led by where we put them. Let's try and put them in a good spot for the customers. And that was actually quite novel in the 80s. So he was then headhunted off to do that. 
Toyota part owned Daihatsu. So what happened was then the guys from Toyota said, right, we want someone in Daihatsu to do the same. So ah, uh, let's go and get this young sort of 23, 24-year-old kid to be head of dealer operations for Daihatsu Australia. And that was me. So right. I went across to uh, completely redo the um, the dealer, the, the whole franchising strategy plan for, for Daihatsu Australia. So, again, coming out of the relationship you'd made initially, you picked up some experience in dealer operations. Somebody moves, they look back and think, there's an opportunity here. Let's get uh, Carl into Daihatsu. And with quite a reasonable amount of responsibility then at an early age. Very, very much. I had a good degree from a good university and I was kind of thrown in at a, a very young age into quite a senior position, um, which had its, its good bits and its bad bits. So you can imagine amongst my my age peers, it was it was quite spectacular. You remember the old greed is good kind of Wall Street ethos of the 80s. Um, but actually, we're into the 90s now. Um, it was very much uh, I was doing absolutely brilliantly. But on the other side, if you can imagine you've got a map and you redraw it. And, OK, I'm going to terminate a third of the dealer network. So then to have a 23, 24 year old kid going to some of these outback towns of all these experienced grizzled crocodile indie type sort of salespeople and coming and saying, hi there, you don't fit in my plan. I'm here to terminate your franchise. It it made for a an interesting time. And I'd say nothing I did at university could have prepared me for that. I think maybe boxing training or my rugby training tackling people was probably more um was more relevant, relevant for the job because it was uh, involved a lot of threats of violence. It, it involved a very, very young kid in a in a very, very hostile situation. What do you think, looking back, was, uh, was was that appropriate? Do you think um, you had enough uh, experience to, to do that? Or were you executing? Do you have any support in terms of deciding how to do that? Uh, yeah, but they kind of let me to it. So it was quite a it was quite a flat management structure. So I reported to the head of sales and marketing, who then reported to the chief exec. And I guess they kind of thought, right, let's just let him, just give him a car, give him a fight. And it was a, I guess the other thing you don't pick up from here so much is Australia is such a big country. So, you know, you'd have to jump on planes. So I'd, I'd be six days up in Brisbane. I'd be, you know, three days down in Melbourne and I'm across the WA. And that's like four and a half hours in the air. And it's so it's very, very, it's a very hard thing to do. Literally, I need to go and see some dealers in Perth, jump on plane, off you go go and terminate them, um, get out get out without getting bruised, fly back to Victoria, go and see someone there. So, yeah, I, I was very, very much in the deep end. Um, mm. I had a little bit of backup, but back then it was a different time. It was literally you, you crash or crash through. You have to fight. If you don't, you sink. So right. it was, so really, it was really in at the deep area. end. <clears throat> yeah. In at the deep end and with a not particularly pleasant job to do. <laughs> And what did that lead to? So, of course, I think as you picked up, when we finished university, most of my friends went travelling. Everybody went, right. some went to Japan, some went to Europe, some went to the States. I went straight to work. So my first couple of years were, were flat out and I guess trying to trying to make a big impact. So oh, I was probably about a year and a half into the Daihatsu role when I just thought, and I'd, I'd been told so many times, the big problem with you is you've never sold cars. You've never gone and sold a car yourself. You're a head office 
young monkey out of um, university, you know, you know the plans, but you've never been on the front line and sold cars yourself. So I just got to a stage, I remember walking the office and just saying, I can't do this anymore. This is just too hard. So I resigned and then decided, that, well, what am I going to go and do? I'm going to go traveling. So my old boss from Hyundai was building a house. So I spent three or four months literally helping him build his house <laughs> while I decided what he wanted to do. So literally I was lugging stuff around a building site, which is quite a quite a change from what I was doing. Um, and then I just jumped on a plane to go to London to go and sell cars. So I landed over here. I landed in London in 1992, I think it was. How much of a big just- deal? How much of a big deal was that? Carl, how common was it for people your age to to go across to uh, to the UK or to Europe at that point in their lives? Relatively common if you're sort of going over there for two years to work in a bar or whatever. But I guess it was slightly slightly less common to be from where I was from to then just say, nah, I don't want to do this. I'm going to go and become a car salesman in London. That's a little bit less common. So that's what I actually did to go. And and I also felt because I had a bit of a profile in Australia, I couldn't really have gone and done that in Australia. I had to go somewhere completely out of the pool, completely out of your comfort zone, new place, just go and just go and do it. So that's what I did. Right. And did you get a job before you got to London or did you just come to London and then look for one? No, I came to London because my little brother was actually living in, in Edinburgh at the time. So my plan was land in London, go and see my brother for a couple of weeks, then do a little bit of a tour around. So yeah, rent a car and go to Oxford, go out, you know, train up to Cambridge, just sort of lay of the land, came back to London. And then I remember, and I distinctly remember this point in life. It was Victoria Station. So I'd kind of done all my plans. And then literally it was coming out, will I turn left or right? I don't know. I have no idea what, what the next move is. So I sat at the entrance of Victoria Station looking left and right and thinking, and it occurred to me at the time, if I go left now, I'll go to one place, I'll meet new people, my life will go one way. If I turn right here, I'll meet a completely different bunch of people, my life will be complete. It's very much the sliding doors moment. So I sat outside of Victoria Station going, oh, I have no idea what the impact's going to be, but I know this will change my life one way or the other. And I thought, ah. Uh, I'm going to go right. So I walked right, and then I managed to find something called Time Out, I think it was. There was like these Australian papers in London, so you could like find places to live. So I managed to find a place in West London uh, where I sort of stayed for a couple of weeks, found a flat in North London, then could start looking for a job. Got a job selling Toyotas in Wilsdon Green. So new and used cars. So as soon as I got that, I literally turned up, and they gave me a little Corolla three-door automatic 1.3, and I literally started selling cars that's fascinating that you were aware in that moment standing outside victoria station that whichever way i turn now is there's two completely different futures if we you know let's not uh not too romantic to say you've got two different futures um which without actually knowing and it's blind isn't it you don't know which you do you know it's going to be different but you don't know what either of them look like um so Absolutely. You think <clears throat> you think about future career and people and you know whether you get married stuff, but but even further through, I thought, right, I could I could turn left and get hit by a bus here. It could actually be even 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 bigger. This would be a much shorter conversation if that happened for sure. It would if be. It... <laughs> 
So you started out there. That's what you set out to do. Come over here, sell some cars, got a job selling Toyotas. They gave you a car. You're living in North London and working in Wilston Green, do you say? Is that what it's called? Wilston Green. And you've never sold cars before. That was a bit that you knew was missing from your uh, repertoire, if you like. How did you find it? Um, car sales literally in a dealership is a, is a great place to learn so many different skills. But I still remember when I started and, and the very first day and I thought, oh, I don't know how to do this. I got no idea. No one's ever trained me. So I sat at my desk and a couple of calls came and one guy rang up and said, um, oh, I want to come look at a, an MR2. I said, yeah, sure. It's coming the second day. <clears throat> So I am literally sitting at my desk. This guy turns up. His name was Nick, actually, I still, I still, and I still remember the number plate. But he literally turned up for a test drive, and I had no sales skill whatsoever. It was a case of, right, okay, I'm a car salesman. You're a car buyer, right, okay. We take it for a test drive, okay. Drove this MR2, an old Mark II red MR2 around North London, came back, and then my brain says, right, okay, car salesman, car buyer, test drive, Next thing is order form. Right. Okay. Okay, Nick. Okay. You like the car? Okay, fine. I'll get my order form out. Okay. It's going to cost you twelve and a half thousand pounds. Right. So I fill this out and you sign that. And he sort of like looked at me and he, he went, okay. And he signed it. And I heard this noise behind me and behind my desk, there was a stairwell and the used car sales manager was, I didn't realize this at the time. So I sold this used Toyota and afterwards the guy who owned the dealership, um, called me upstairs and so Les and Colin are in the room and they said uh, do you realize that we listened to your entire sales process I went uh-oh this is where they fire me and he turns around and he goes Colin tells me you're nothing if not direct <laughs> said, he said why did you just go in for the kill why did you go for the close so fast and I said it's because I didn't know anything else <laughs> that's what I do I, I take someone for a test drive I sit them down I say it's this and they fill out an order form that's the job in it <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Complete did... stupidity. Just walked in, walked it, and and the guy bought it. <laughs> I like it. I like the the clarity with which you approached it. I need to, you know, I've got to get. This is the end of the process. I'm not sure what happens in the middle. I know, I know the beginning. I know there's a beginning as a test drive, and at the end they sign an order form. Not I've got a clue what happens in the middle. So let's just skip to the end. And uh, did you maintain that um, that process, or did they try to train a slower process into you? <laughs> they did. I got I got four used cars in my first week, <clears throat> but they kind of realised that I don't know. And I always think my strongest skill is always just pure blind luck. Um, so I managed to do that. But I then did go on Toyota training courses, and they did actually try to to um, train me up. So yes. It became it became more uh, more more structured and professional, although maybe no less successful than than that initial approach, uh, which gave us a lovely story as well. And how how long did you spend doing that? And what was the move that you made next? Oh, I think I was about a year and a half there. At, uh, it was a place called Hassop Toyota. It's long gone now. I think it's a, a furniture store. The reason I moved for that, so I started selling cars. But then I kind of figured out pretty early that, A, you get paid for selling the cars, but selling accessories and finance was was a lot more profitable. Back then in the early to mid-90s, it was, you know, if you sold a car, okay, I mean, you might get 50, 100 pounds a car. But if you sold finance, particularly if you sold it like at stupidly large rates, you got a lot more money. So I found that I started doing really, really well with finance sales. So if someone came in to look at a car, 
even if they had cash, they weren't getting out paying that cash. They were getting out with you know with with everything they possibly could. Things like um, uh, paint protection, uh, internal. So un unfortunately, I guess I was a I was a bad example because I was just trying to sell everybody everything. And I really I really enjoyed selling the finance side, but also. Um, also double teaming where a colleague was sort of struggling a little bit of, of jumping in and explaining why financing is a really, really good idea. So I became strong on that. And then um, from that, I decided, oh, I think I'll be a business manager because they make loads of money and they uh, and they don't have to do all the all the legwork with a customer. Mm -hmm. So a job came up with First Front BMW, which was it was a BMW dealer just south, uh, south back in Kennington, just up from Vauxhall Bridge. So I then went there as business manager, um, sales controlling on a BMW side, which was a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah. And was it motivated by, were you motivated by money, do you think, Carl? Was that the main driver at that point? Strangely, despite what I've just said about a toilet experience, I've never been that money motivated. It's more a, I don't know, it's more of a challenge thing. It's more of a being successful thing. It was more of a counter. Um, I didn't need the money but i wouldn't say i did it I, I didn't go to bmw for the money side i think there was i've always had bmws there was a there was a big franchise pull my very first car was a bmw so it was more the the challenge step up i guess early 20s mid 20s ambitious not not so much the money inside but yeah this is the getting ahead the career that's mm. really really what i was chasing and how long did you spend at the bmw dealer Oh, that was not long at all. That was about nine months working there. Um, I, would, I wouldn't say that was the, the happiest I've ever been. I loved the job, but the actual dealership, uh, it was another one which was run by somebody who'd started as an entrepreneur. So uh, the problem there was it was very much someone who could do what they want. And it came to, it was actually the 5 Series launch. It was the 5 Series launch that was me as the business manager and also the sales manager, who, who was my boss. And the guy who owned the dealership said, right, I want people to contact all our 5 Series customers about the new the new 5 Series, invite them down, that sort of thing. And I said, yeah, okay, this is fine. So me and the sales manager in, in his office, and, and it was like, okay, yeah, this is fine, let's do it. About a week later, I'm down at the sales manager's office and said, okay, right, should we start ringing all these customers now? Because they don't want the salesman to do it. They want the sales manager and business manager to do it. Should we start? And he said, no, 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 we're busy. I said, okay, well, do you want me to start? No, 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 don't start yet. Don't start yet. Uh, we'll do it together. Fine. <clears throat> about a week later, again, so about two weeks after the first meeting, chief exec says, ah, can you, can you two come up to my office? Come up to the office. So me and the sales manager walk in and he says, all right, how are we going with the five series customers? And I said, well, we haven't called any yet. And the sales manager turns around. He, he looks at both of us and goes, Carl, you told me you were going to do that. Hang on, no, you said don't do it till you're ready. No, 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 no. You definitely said that you would do that. Why haven't you done it? And he literally put me under a bus. And I literally said, right, love the job, but I am not going to stand. I'm, I'm not going to do this. I just will not work with someone like this. So I literally agreed at that point. And I'd been doing well up to that point. I'm going to go down. I'm going to clear out my desk and I'm going to walk out the front door and I'll leave the keys to my demo here, shall I? <clears throat> Right. And that was a principle. That was you were even at a young age recognizing that that culture, that sort of leadership style was not going to work for you. Absolutely. And, you know, love the cars, um, love the job. But it's just not I'm a bit funny that way. Um, culture always beats strategy.
It really does. And because the sales manager had said that, number one, I would never work for him again. But number two, the dealer principal took his word for it. So I wasn't working for him either. So literally, it was like, I'm out of here. There's no I'm, future. I'm no future in this environment. Nope. Nope. And then you haven't got a job at that point then. So how did you deal with that? <laughs> I still want to do a similar sort of job. But, but literally, I walked out of the dealership. And it was only two miles because I was living in Charing Cross Road at the time. So from, from Vauxhall Bridge, it's only a two-mile walk. So I thought, right. So I, I walked out and I rang a colleague from my old Toyota dealership and said, look, you know, this has happened. I said, I'm not going to work here. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm just heading to the pub. I'm going to, I'm going to the middle London. I'm going to go to the pub for the rest of the day. That sounds like a good plan for what's just happened. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the plan. And, and I was, I was, I was in the pub and the phone rang and it was my colleague from my Toyota days, my old one. And he said, I've just spoken to Les. I've told him you've walked out. He said, you better be back in here first thing tomorrow morning. <laughs> John and I shared a flat at the time. So he came home and he gave me a lift in the next morning. So I literally the next morning was back in my Toyota dealership. <laughs> Right. Uh, so but it, no issue, no issue with, with that. And how long did you stay there that time? Uh, that was short because I, I, I think literally he was almost trying to do me a favour because I still wanted to be a business manager. I still right. love the job. Um, but he said, right, now you come in here and you sell cars. And, and, and he knew that's what I wanted to do because I told him when I left, I'm only leaving because I want to do this job. Um, and he said, OK, come here, sell cars. Till, till you get your next business manager's job, come here and sell cars. Everything's fine. So right, that's very decent. That. So he was giving you uh, giving you a hand there. He was, yeah. And and then from there, I, I then saw an advert for Hartwell Group, which was one of the big dealer groups across the UK about being a business manager um, within the Luton and Dunstable area. So I then went from business manager BMW um, to be a business manager, senior business manager at a very large group at a Ford dealership. So I went from BMW to Ford and Whereas I didn't like the sales process at BMW, which was very aggressive. It was very high pressure. Going to a Ford dealer, I had absolute ball. I loved it. Let's talk a little bit about that then. The BMW process that you found aggressive, was that a, a national process or was that a local, locally driven uh, style? I think to an extent, but we were in central London, so you've got to think of the type of buyer profile. So basically, a lot of our buyers at the time were you know, yuppie, self-made, aggressive types. So the sales process, I think, in central London was probably a lot um, more aggressive than outside of London. Right. So when people would come in and say, I want to buy this 323i but you know it's up for it's up for 25,000 I only want to pay 21,000 our sales process and we used to call it the Ford close confusingly enough so when someone would come and say I am the sales director of such and such finance and you will do this cheaper because I want I demand a bigger discount we used to literally say things like that's no problem if you're telling me you cannot afford a BMW, we do know the we do know the um, sales manager at Kensington Ford. So I'm more than happy to introduce you to her. Um, here's her phone number. No problem, Mr. Customer. And it would it would be that sort of very very aggressive sort of sales uh, approach. But after it, so many people who they very much looked down on my sales team. But so many times you go to do a handover after this real kind of nasty process. And they would say things like, oh, that was great. I really enjoyed the battle. 
And it seemed to be that the fact that we had come back aggressive was a positive. So it was, you know, oh, I guess people just at, at your level as, as salespeople, I'm not used to having sort of, you know, people at your level standing up to me, you know, in my in my work. People don't stand up to me, but I really enjoyed the battle. So you really stayed in there well. And you, afterwards you think, oh, thank you very much. And, you know, they'd be very, very happy. And you go at the back of the dealership and just basically scream. <laughs> That's interesting. Then you've went to Ford and found that a better process. I've heard we've had um, senior people from Ford Credit on this uh, show, and I've only ever heard really good things about the training at Ford Credit and the, the development of people and, and the culture as well. So it sounds, you know, I might be getting ahead of myself, but it sounds like you experienced some good things there. Absolutely. I think going back to those time in the 90s, the difference was the Ford buyer saw you as another person. So it was a it was a discussion. It was so much less aggressive. So the so humility, the humility of the purchase, uh, the humility of the customer was helping as well. Absolutely, and the, and the training from Ford Credit because I was a business manager. Um, yeah, so yeah, selling Fords in Luton, which is Vauxhall Town, yeah, may not yeah, sound like a, <laughs> may may not sound like an easy thing to do, but it was good because you know buyers wanted the cars. They, you liked them. They liked you. It was amicable. It was friendly. Um, I was, yeah, came out of central London in a lovely big BMW into Luton in a bogger model Fiesta, and I was as happy as I could possibly be. Great people. Um, Luton was kind of like in the middle of the group, and me and a young guy called Malcolm Cooper were the two business managers, and we got Luton to right top of the group. So Luton, Dunstable and Lewisham in London were the three biggest Ford dealers in group. So we got Luton to right near the top. And they said, well, is it Malcolm or is it Carl? So they decided to split us. So I then got transferred to Dunstable, which is about five miles down the road. So Malcolm got a new offsider in Luton and it's me and a guy called Will in Dunstable. And God, for the next two years, Luton, Lewisham and Dunstable Ford were the top of Hartwell group. If we were second in a month in income per retail and Luton were number one or Lewisham was, it was absolute disaster. Yet if we were sort of like 40th out of 60, but we, but Luton were one below us, that was a win. So, <laughs> so you're was, very focused on competing with your old buddy. That was the main the main driver. Oh, it, it was great. We used to play five-a-side football. We used to play – it used to be – it was probably – very, it's the most constructive rivalry I think I've ever had in my life. Yeah. And it was absolutely brilliant. But the other beauty was because those three dealerships and the Ford credit training was absolutely brilliant in terms of our penetration of Ford options. So PCPs in the early days when PCPs were difficult, uh, I think we were number three in, in London Southeast for PCP penetration and renewals, which is absolutely brilliant. But we just drove each other. But we're also... Anybody who joined Hartwell Group across the 60 dealerships would have to come and spend a week with us. So ah. I'd have the sales team there um, that they'd do the business managers course and then they'd come and watch us with customers and watch us managing the um, the sales team and being sales closers. So, you know, half the group had you know come to to us or, or loot them that. And it was a really, really good place where you learn to train people to train people while you're doing your job. So you had two different things. A, you're doing a job, but B, you're teaching the bloke who's watching you how to do your job. And it was a, it was a great time. I loved the, the whole Ford deal of it. 
I love how you've, you know, we've come on in this story from that very first used Toyota MR2 that you sold so directly uh, <laughs> to, to Nick. And how then you're much more sophisticated by this point. You're very well trained and passing on that training to, to others. So what were some of the aspects of that approach that you had then? How would you compare it to your very first sale? <laughs> But by then it was very process. It was very process. But I think then the difference is I'd learned a lot more about culture. So it wasn't about just somebody come in and, you know, this is a process and follow it. Because I think it was just, it could be so mechanical and that's where things didn't work. And it was trying to make the sales team be part of a, of a family, but also people who are joining. People who are joining the group, A, okay, this is the process. If you don't follow the process, it won't work. But the process is not all. You have to get everybody on side. You have to get everybody working together as a team. And the thing, the thing with business managers, sales controllers and sales managers, the best salespeople don't always become the best at that role. It's not what you do. It's what others do and what you do to get them to do it. And I think that was just such a brilliant area. So you're right. By then, we were, we were professional killers. We weren't sort of like my Toyota days. I was a complete amateur accidentally selling cars, if you like. I was, I was quite a different animal by the end of Hartwell BMW. Definitely. It was brilliant for learning. Yeah, just little things. Like we used to have a thing where in the first day, trainees would come in. They'd be nervy. They wouldn't know. And they were thinking, oh, God, what's this going to be? We're in a big Ford dealership. And we had a little ritual we used to do. Um, what we did was, remember the old price boards with the pound signs? Yes, I had, a, I had a pound sign in my office up on the wall. And when they would come in, we'd start with some of the basic uh, training stuff. And then we'd say, of course, of course, what religion are you? And they'd tell you what religion you were. You say, well, obviously, a business manager. All business managers worship spawns. So we'd, we'd develop this god called spawns. And, <laughs> oh, I hate you. <laughs> yeah. uh, should I really admit this? So basically, you'd have somebody in who's just joined a major dealer group. You're sort of an hour or two in. And then you'd have the salesmen all come in sort of like single file. And as they would go past this pound sign, they would worship and go, praise be to spawns, praise be to spawns. And you'd have these trainees just looking at you as if, my God, what have I done? But as soon as it kind of dropped, they would laugh and they were kind of one of us. And it was just a little icebreaker. So, so the religion of spawns we invented for all trainees and even the, the group of a lot of the group directors of Hartwell, they'd say, oh, okay, where, where was your training? Oh, Hartwell, uh, Dunstable. Oh, okay, so you got the bloody spawns bit, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But just to put them at ease, take some of the fear away from the uncertainty from that first first experience in a new environment and, yeah. and, and make them belong, give them something to belong <laughs> to as well very good Carl now I know that you know you've got because uh, I've got a, a, a high level idea of the direction your career took how long did you spend in that dealer environment and in the F&I and the business manager role and when did you move out of that it's probably about six years in literally working for dealers or dealer groups um, but it's a great great experience it really was there was a point where you had a team of business managers across a number of, of dealerships that you were responsible for yeah so from hartwell it was as i said it was it was a 50 50 role so 50 percent was sales controlling for the 
for the dealership and there, there was two of us as, as, a, as a team um the 50 percent bringing the new people in and training them etc so from there um the next one i was i went and joined a company called london general Hol- was that london general holdings first yeah so um it was within the lombard motor finance empire if you knew that um within national accounts so i then effectively became implanted as the group f and i head for a for a dealer group called dutton foreshore uh, which is part of Lonra. So it literally was then I had a regional role. Sorry, not regional, it was a national role, really. So we had dealers from Maidstone to South Wales to Newcastle to Preston and Blackpool. So then basically my job then was very much the, the training role. So a training a team of business managers right across the country. So recruiting them, training them, uh, going appraising them each month. So I'd go and, and literally, um, it, so I'd be in Blackpool once a month at the uh, Nissan and Rover garages, literally going and say, right, what happened? Let's go through, let's look at your finance plan, let's look at your income per retail, what's your closing rates, and literally, and then training. So if somebody was had a, had a weak area, then I'd train them. So I'd, I'd do a little bit more. This is this is how I would have done it, and literally managing that. And we got Dutton for of all the Lombard national accounts, when I took over, um, it was in a bit of a mess. There's other things I heard afterwards as well, but we got them from the bottom to, to right up near the top. So of all the 12 national accounts, Dutton Forshaw went from being a failing one to being a, a very, very successful one. Um, so I got the right people in the right, in the right. Some of the some of the existing business managers were good. They were just demotivated. I could think of Peugeot, was it Cardiff or Newport? I think it was Newport. So walked in, first thing business manager says, I've had enough of this company. I'm walking out of the crap. I've I've had enough. Okay, sit down, what's the problem? And just went through what all the issues were, and the salesman didn't seem to have much. Um, uh, cre- he didn't have much credibility with the salesman, etc. So literally, I just worked on him on a few things. So as he started to get a few wins, all of a sudden the salesman trusted him. So the referrals were really good, and he became really, really good. He last I heard, he was a general manager for the group. He was just things like that, just just building that, and and, and I really enjoyed that as well. Hmm. And were there any thoughts of going back to Australia at all? It doesn't sound like you've been uh, been drawn back at this point. No, no, I haven't. I've, and I've been back many, many times in the thirty years I've been in Britain. Um, I miss the people. I miss I miss a lot of school friends. Uh, I miss family, but not so much the place. It's hard to describe. But for me, Sydney in nineteen eighty four is home. Sydney in, say, last time I was back now is five years because of COVID. Um, Sydney in 2017 wasn't home. The whole atmosphere is different. It's it's a lot more American. Um, from, you know, the old layabout times we lived in board shorts and went to the beach. It's now, when I go back, if you go out with people, it's like, well, where did you go to school? How much do you earn? How much is your house worth? And if the answer isn't high enough, Oh, okay, no problem. I'll go talk to someone else. The area I come from has, has made that change, so I can't see myself going back. Right. Um, I was just curious because you're a long way from home, and you know, in the stories that you've been telling us so far, you're still a relatively young young man, and you, you're a long way from home. Then, what was the first move out of the dealer dealer environment or the group, you know, dealer environment? Oh, it was from Dutton for sure. It was then to um, 
was, was to Inchicate, which was which was a monster dealer group. But that was uh, starting a new internal finance company alongside doing the role I did before. So so I did I did another role in that area in a uh, but this is more regional. This is London Southeast, but for a much 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 bigger organisation. Then towards uh, the back end of ninety eight. Um, Vauxhall, I don't know if you remember with block exemption, the end of block exemption, what would car dealers do? Would they buy all their dealers? Would they sell through supermarkets? Would they sell through this new thing called the internet, which was just starting? Will we sell through virgin cars? And so a lot of the car manufacturers are looking at what do we do post block exemption? So Vauxhall advertised for a, um, so like a few strategy manager. And I thought, oh, this sounds like fun. And so I went for the, the job and I still remember the the response from HR at Vauxhall was dear applicant number 485. <laughs> really, <laughs> right. Dear, dear applicant number 485. I thought, well, this is a long shot. Anyway, so I went and I had an interview and another interview, another interview. I thought, well, this is interesting. So General Motors were looking at putting together a future future strategy unit. So they, a guy called Chris Evans, not that Chris Evans, was appointed for that job. But then the director of retail of Vauxhall, a guy called Dave Kirk, says, um, you're a close second, but I need a captive dealer. You know, we, we need we need someone on board who's gone through the ranks, who's sold cars, gone through management positions, had gone through regional and group positions. So we're going to create a position at Vauxhall. So you join as a strategic hire. Um, as what was called the market area development manager. So it was my job to be almost like the voice of the dealer. So when we were presenting to the board of Vauxhall and GM in Europe, um, I was the guy with with dealer stripes, if you like. So we'd look at all these things. Um, so, yeah, then I went back manufacturer side finally, despite saying I'd never do it. Um, so, yeah, so although they did point out later when I said to David, because it was market area, was the hub and spoke approach. So basically, instead of all, all these different dealers competing with each other, big main um, hub dealer, and then the spoke being the smaller dealers around it, where all the functions were centralized at the core. Uh, it was only afterwards um, when I pointed out, I said, market area development manager, but I'm mainly doing retail. And I said, well, what, why did you pick that title? He said, well, have you tried to shorten it? I said, no. He said, market area development manager, M-A-D-M-A-N. What's that spell? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah i went to Vauxhall. yes i spent two years in future strategy trying to work out what the future looked like <laughs> very good so using another common theme using the experience you'd picked up over the previous years that was recognized by Vauxhall as something they wanted to have in their headquarter team here in the uk to help define that strategy that idea of wanting to get ahead wanting to face up to challenges and develop your career were you feeling that you're on track? I think I was. Yeah, I, I, there's one little step back, sort of two jobs before. Where I actually had a quite a big car car accident. So coming back and that kind of life when you're on the road, you know, drive up to Newcastle for you know, Newcastle, go up and see those guys, and across to Preston the next day. I was on the road doing massive mileages. Um, I had a big head-on car crash outside of outside of Oxford. And I was out of action for quite a while. That's why I've still got a flat foot today. And I think at that point, I decided that I didn't want to go further. I didn't want to become a chief exec. I, I wanted to prioritize life over my career. So I had that, I had that, how can I say it? It diffused, it, that car crash diffused the burning ambition to get to the top. 
I just decide there were bigger things in life. You know, once you once you've been to a point where you think you're about to die, it does change. It completely changes your stress level, the way you view things. Um, you know, OK, if a big presentation goes wrong, nobody dies. And, and from there to when I got to Voxel, yeah, I felt I was I was yeah, I was going as far as I'd like. I've pushed it. I've pushed it. I've done some really good things in my career. But if someone I wasn't as driven, put it that way. So on the one hand, you were progressing. You were getting more senior positions and more responsibility. And on the other, you'd also had an experience where it adjusted your focus and, and made other things more important. So some of the pressure was off. That internal pressure that you might have put on yourself was uh, dialed down a little bit. Absolutely. It's, it's knowing it's taking the decision about, you know, you're only here once. There are bigger things. So I ha- Does that, I that still stay with you? I'm always fascinated. People have these sort of life-changing events, whether it's um, recently my guest had uh, cancer, age 20, you know, early 20s, and that was yeah. a life-changing event for for him. Exactly the same reaction, became much more balanced. And, um, and I'm always curious whether that wears off after a while. Um, <laughs> has it stayed with you to this day? Uh, yes and no. So, yeah, yes, it does. But I think uh, then I have gone back into severe. Yeah, I obviously eventually ended up as a chief executive of a of a startup of technology and into a, a very, very high pressure, high stress role. But the I'd say that the the piece where it's not important, what's important stayed with me. So particularly with my last role, when things were you know, when things were high pressure, when things were, I, I could survive pressure and I could still survive pressure now. And sometimes I felt like I was in a spacesuit in a furnace, if you know what I mean. And if I opened the spacesuit, I would melt. But I really felt that that whole piece of being able to stay calm as a sniper under fire always stays. It always stays. When everyone's running around saying, we're all going to die, this is terrible, the board's unhappy about that. If we don't hit that target, this is going to happen. The the shield is there. So you just, you know, when, when the ship's going down or a plane's going down, you want to be completely focused, level. And that's the bit that I think that's all I've, I've always kept it since then. That's made me think that just because you favour balance or you, you've had an experience like that which have put things into perspective, it doesn't mean you can't can't get into stressful situations it more means that you can be in a stressful situation and be more impervious to it because yes, it's well, just it's, not it's not that big a deal so, well the, the motivation is still there the motivation the it's just that you have to stay calm it's a little bit like a say a rugby kicker under under a pressure situation you've just got to clear clear the pressure don't panic you don't get nervous you just right what do i need to do Right. Okay. Select, select plan C, execute. It's not run around and think, oh my God, everything's going to go wrong. It's just literally, and I call it sniper mode. You just become a sniper. It's okay. You know, no matter what people throw at you, um, at the end of the day, no one's going to die. So just, you know, fight your way out of it. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you're less effective or less driven or less motivated. It just means you're cooler under pressure, cooler under fire, potentially. Cooler under fire, which I think makes people more efficient. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. I like it. And so at the end of that strategic 
project with Vox or what came next? <laughs> so we got to the end of that and it was it was a fun job. Well, it was a fun job and it wasn't a fun job. Um, so it was great, but it would be a month of it was almost like the military, a month of, of full on. Then you'd be presenting to the board and things like that. But then you'd have absolutely nothing to do for two months. And that was probably the dullest thing. But the the project came to an end and I got asked, where did I want to go to next within Voxel? So you've done future strategy, right? You know, we came up with what we were going to do. Uh, what do you want to do next? And the bit that I hadn't done was fleet. So I went out to the field to become a fleet sales manager for Voxel. Uh, originally Voxel, then Voxel and Saab, then Voxel, Saab and Chevrolet, then Voxel, Saab, Chevrolet, Cadillac and Hummer as GM fleet. Um, so I was seven years in the field for, for GM. Uh, got relocated out here into Oxfordshire, into the Cotswolds, which was great. Um, and it, it was another great fun time. Uh, worked with some great people. Um, my job was flogging as many Astras and, and Vectras courses as we possibly could to fleets across the, the southwest. My territory, as the numbers got less and less, my territory got bigger and bigger and bigger. So I was once again back to doing big um, distances, always in the car, always talking in the car. Um, but it was a great time. I loved it. It was really good. Yeah. I'm stopping myself because I did a similar role for uh, Rover Group at so probably not a dissimilar time. So I'm deliberately stopping myself from indulging in a, a little reminisce about fleet sales in the in, in, in the UK at that time. So please indulge. No, no, no. I'm just thinking we'll do it offline. Yeah, so seven years doing fleet sales. You know, I'm sure you learned extra aspects from doing that. Um so what brought you out of fleet sales? So having a great time. Uh, I, I think I was probably in the field for too long, seven years in, in that sort of role. But, you know, I was having the time of my life. But um, I do have a very strong environmental and, and sustainable, believe it or not, from the car industry, a very environmental and sustainable theme. So we got to the point where we got hauled into Luton and they had a big uh, Cadillac Escalade 6.2 V8, uh, Hummer H2. And I said, good news you're now responsible for um, the sales of Hummer and Cadillac for the Southwest and, and South Wales. And I thought they were absolutely obscene. I thought 6.2 V8, 4x4s, that's not what yeah, – I'm, I'm happy with Astras, I'm happy with Vectras and Corsas and the occasional Zafira, but I'm not going to have anything to do with pushing these monsters. Um uh, and when the guys from Chevrolet and Cadillac came and showed us the vehicles, I, I let them know. I kind of said, no, I don't want to sell this. They were saying, well, it's for individuals. They're for people. You're high value. I, I get that. But this car's obscene. There's no reason this car needs to be in the UK. I really don't want to sell it. Um, so that that was a another watershed moment. You, you can see I kind of take decisions too quickly, don't I, Andy? Well, um, I'm not sure it's too quickly, but you certainly have moments where you uh, it's pretty black and white by the sounds of it. So what happened when you said that was was that your did you have to walk then, or did someone help you out uh, of that role? Uh, there's only once I've kind of walked out without having something to go to, but at the time, Energy Saving Trust. So Energy Saving Trust, they're technically a charity did a lot of the delivery for people for, for Olev at the time, which is now Ozev, Department for Transport, um, uh, DEC, who I think now Bays, so Business Environment Industrial Strategy. So um, it was basically a role came up as a key account manager, basically advising fleets on lower emission fleet. Uh, 
So major government departments, uh, a few large corporates, but also smaller organisations literally take everyone's complete fleet policies, take all the data, fuel card info, um, driver training stuff, put them all together, come up with a plan. Say, okay, if you do A, it'll save you X in carbon footprint, which equals Y in pounds, because carbon footprint is exactly fuel use, which is exactly fuel cost. So if you did this in driver training, it'll save you 200 tonnes a year, it'll save you 1,500 pounds. If you do this and change the car policy and you do it on this and drop the CO2s by 10, 15%, it'll be X in tonnage, Y in. So it's basically doing 50 page reports on how to run a greener fleet, take on low emission vehicles, uh, how to handle things like you know, driver behavior, um, data management, um, get rid of fuel cards. So I ended up doing that for about seven years. I loved it. But people at the start were saying, you've come out of being a level two manager at Vauxhall. Sorry, sorry, level eight. So I was a level eight where it was assistant departmental manager grade within Vauxhall, which is a senior management position. You've gone to work for government for less money. Why have you done that? But I loved it. You felt you were doing something positive. So I sort of felt like I took a step back. But then within a few months, I got promoted with an EST on more money. And all my colleagues at Vauxhall Fleet went on to four-day weeks and had a 20% pay cut. So I kind of, I did a job for the right reason. And then again, by sheer blind luck, managed to find myself in a better position. Yeah, you got rewarded for it. Did it feel, was it conscious at the time? Because I, I, I like that idea that you had come to the conclusion that you wanted to do something more meaningful, if you like. It, I, it's great that you had those seven years of fleet experience. And then mm. you had really, really tested by these Hummers and Escalades that really challenge your uh, professionalism to, okay on the one hand yeah I'm, I'm a fleet manager this is what I do a fleet sales professional this is what I do but this is like the straw that breaks the camel's back these 6.2 liter v8s or whatever they are so, um that's just wrong it's it's um it, you know not appropriate and then switching into a role where initially at least you're taking less money less status perhaps mm. uh, in terms of departmental grade but feeling that it's more meaningful, it sounds like. And was that conscious at the time that you thought, no, no, this feels, I'm prepared to sacrifice some of this, uh, some of the dollars in order for that sense of purpose and meaning about what I'm doing? 100%. Um, absolutely. And I, at the time, I said, this is why I'm doing it. And it was deliberate. And I think I said a little bit earlier, strangely, I'm not that money motivated. I'm, I'm challenge motivated but not so much money motivated. So I was quite happy to do that because, you know, I'd been in the big bad car industry for a long time and, and sold a lot of cars. But it was literally, my wife has a very, very strong environmental uh, streak as well. So at the time, I didn't I didn't need the money. So that's it. I want to do this. It's positive. Um, you know, making a positive difference. Bang, I will do this. And, and I literally went, it was completely and utterly 100% for that reason. And it sounds quite a, you know, consultative role, a a role that would require quite a bit of, um, you know, brain work and uh, thought analysis of people's fleet situation. Was that something you enjoyed doing? Then? Absolutely. Uh, probably not naturally an accountant in terms of love of figures, but I understand them. And the starting officer, well, I was a marketing analyst in my first marketing role. 
I've always been good with numbers, but I don't enjoy them. But it was the the numbers are a means to an end. So yeah. how do I how do I analyze a whole set of different parameters and make them into something that say, okay, this is great. You'll save you'll save CO two this way, but then translating it into pounds. So right. using those tools to be able to do it. No, and I really enjoy. I loved working for EST. Um, great organization. It was a bit altruistic. No one was there for the money. Everyone was there to do something positive. But, but also remember back, and that was 07 to 2014, we were slightly ahead of the curve on things like electric vehicles. Um, so it was, again, it's like trying to sell Hyundai's, trying to get people to go into low emission fleets 07 to 14 when everybody just wanted big BMWs was a hard sell in some ways. It was a difficult thing to do. I like how you make the comparison to those early days of selling Hyundai's in Australia. So it's it was a sales job where, yeah, there wasn't momentum. It was you were having to create the momentum. You had to sell the concept and then the product, that sort of idea, like the the early days of, of, of mm. leasing, say, or contract hire. So you spent a few years at the Energy, Energy Saving Trust. Yeah. What, what caused you to move on from there? <laughs> oh, here's another one. So, so, so basically, I was happy. You're right. Yeah, seven and a half years doing that, and I'd been a key account manager, then then a fleet consultant. Because I'd been in that EV space, but also I had access to government because I'd obviously been involved with a lot of government things. A lot of manufacturers, and particularly people like Renault and Nissan, were starting to see the wave early. So, I'd got quite a few headhunters asking, you know, whether I'd come and come back into working for a manufacturer. And I didn't want to, to be honest. I was quite happy doing what I did. One particularly said, look, the guys at Nissan, they've been looking for a specific role. They've been trying to fill this for about 10, 11 months. Um, they need somebody who's got EV experience, credibly with yeah, a, a profile. And because of my EST role, because I was the only one who actually enjoyed public speaking at events and things, I'd had an industry profile. So the, the fleet director and the head of sales for Nissan wants someone to come in and lead the EV team. So with a particular specific focus on things like um, government and um, public sector. Uh, so they've spent a long time looking for someone. They think your profile is absolutely right. Uh, can you go and see them? So I thought, okay, well, I'll go and talk to them. Nissan, they, you know, they're taking EVs, right? You know, they're actually doing this the right way. It was only a couple of years early years of leaf remember um and i had a i had a meeting in essex so i said well i'm coming past maple cross so i'll drop in and see them for an hour i'll go and i'll go and speak to barry and michael um i'll, I'll drop in and talk to them i'll, I'll do that so i did that and within this sound it's like a, a four interview process so i said okay i'll drop into maple cross i'll talk to them see what they want to do so i went in i spoke to these two guys for for an hour uh, they convinced me that they really wanted to move the ev needle that they wanted somebody and that I was the right person. I said, okay, that's great, fine. I now need to go for my meeting. So I went to a meeting in Essex. I came back, headhunter rang me up and said, how do you think it went? I said, well, I think it went really well. I think they'll probably want me to go through the interview process. And she says, uh, no, that's not what they said. Okay, what's that? They said, they said, bugger the interview process, just give him what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went to National EV Manager at Nissan without actually being interviewed. So I said, well, okay. So I got back in touch. I said, look, the, the money, it's not the money side. So if you guys can guarantee I'm only EVs, so Leaf and ENV 200, I'm only going to work on those and not on any of the petrol or diesel cars. Um, it's the only way I would come back into the car industry. 
and we oh, agreed. So yeah, so I had a team at Nissan, um, and again, in terms of trying to sell, trying to sell an EV in twenty fourteen was probably harder than trying to sell a Hyundai in, in 1988. <laughs> Fair enough. And I, and I joined and the chief exec said, I still remember this, a guy called uh, Jim. So Jim was the chief exec in Nissan. He said, uh, okay, the Leafs, you know, okay, it's a hard, you know, it, it's it's a hard thing. But the vans, you'll never, ever sell an EMV van. And uh, within about a year, Nissan in the UK sold more Leafs than Nissan Japan. No, sorry, not Leafs, uh, ENV vans, than Nissan Japan, Nissan Germany, Nissan USA. We were number one with about 85% market share in electric vans. So first of all, I love the pep talk from the CEO. CEO you'll, you'll, never sell, you'll never sell one of these. And that clearly worked. Uh, what did you do then to become for, for the UK to become the top, the top producer? We just believed in the van, and I must admit, and hearing that the NV is being discontinued now was a was a personal um, blow, if you like. So these these were good fans, and they were really really cheap to run, but also they had an exact specific spot in the market. So I had a lot of contacts within public sector. I had a really good team of guys. Um, we would we spent some time with particularly public sector and also major corporations, but just pushing the things that the van were good at. So. You'd go to, I could think of a major police force, and they'd say, right, okay, we're going to go to tender on our vans. And at the time, you had Peugeot, you had Renault, you had Citroën, like Fiat had electric vans, and us. And we'd say, okay, but for these vans, you need them to be, um, you need a certain carrying capacity. So therefore, go to tender. That's great. Go to tender. Everyone can do it, but just make sure you've got at least two cubic meters in the back. Bearing in mind, we're at 2.2 and everybody else is at 1.8. It meant that all these tenders went out and that was anybody could do it. Anyone can do it. But the thing is, you had to have at least two cubic meters. We're the only ones who did. Or things like, you know, you need to have at least 75 kilowatt engine. And of course, everybody else was in the 60s. So it was just influencing the market before anyone went to tender. It sounds, um, you know, cute. However, you still have to get yourself into a position to do that. Yes. Uh, a good team. A good team that knew exactly what we were doing. Um, six months in, again, the same, same chief exec said to me, "So look, your your team are very expensive. This is the number we do through retail. This is the number we do through fleet. This is the costs." I didn't tell my team at the time, but he said, "Right, you got six months to turn that cost ratio around, or else they're all out." I didn't tell them that because they probably would have looked for other jobs. So yeah, we just built up a really good team ethic, really good culture. We all worked for each other. They were good at what they did. And we sold loads of electric cars and vans when it was really hard to sell cars and vans. (laughs) That's good to hear, Carl. And did you manage then to keep the people? Was it enough? Yes and no. At one point, because of the headcount constraints, I had to let several leave. So I had to then make them all compete against each other which was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. So I had to let a few of them go, but I did help the guys that left. I did help them get their next jobs and their next jobs after that as well. So once they're my guys, they're my guys. So um, in terms of introducing them to people for, for other jobs and giving them a reference, all of them managed to find homes. And the, strangely, the ones I kept when I left Nissan, they're all at, they're all now at um, Complio. Um, <laughs> my my left and right hand followed me to new job right right 
what happened then? So when did you leave Nissan? What was the story around that? I think that's when we met, Carl. You were at you were in that role, uh, heading up that EV team. It was probably around 2015, something like that. We met uh, then. So what uh, what happened after that? What happened after that? So we did brilliantly at Nissan as some really, really good people. And then we got to the stage where Nissan decided to have a reorg. And my team were, were not just electric vehicle, but we were now electric vehicle and total public sector, meaning it was petrol and diesel cars and vans and also electric vehicles. So it took out the thinking being that EV, when we got to 2018, was starting to not people were starting to wake up to what we've been trying to do for four years. So the problem was we were now EV, which, which was our heart, plus also all public sector petrol and diesel. It was, it was a different management team at Nissan by then. So the guys that agreed that I will never touch petrol and diesel, they were gone. And the new guy said, well, okay, it's fine. You've got a crack team. They're really, really good. EVs now spread right across the corporate team, but your guys will be EV specialist plus public sector. And that's, again, it's almost like the Cadillac moment. Mm. <laughs> You're seeing a pattern now, Andy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, but it's interesting because, it it, you know, you can – understand how someone would would make that decision but also what made your team special that focus that you had how that would be diluted significantly by giving you responsibility across all public sector for the combustion vehicles as well so i understand it so that became kind of things changed around you the environment changed and you didn't feel comfortable anymore with that I was still happy in a lot of ways. I was still happy in a lot of ways. I just was no longer 100%. It was no longer 100% matched with what I wanted to do, which is where the Germans from Energy popped up. Where what popped up? Energy, the Germans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so did you, were you out looking then, or was it just a good fortune? I, I was looking. I, I was actually looking because I slightly disillusioned with having to go to petrol and diesel again. And I guess all the way through that career and the previous one, I'd always, and still do now, get a lot of headhunters who want to talk to you because people have had that history within electric vehicles and public sector. And particularly when a lot of people know you across an industry, you get a lot of approaches. So I, I did get another headhunter who was particularly, how can I say, he was taking no for an answer. He was like a Terminator. And so energy had been going in Germany for about 10 years. So big in Germany, uh, energy at do uh, electric vehicle hardware, so charging hardware and also software. They just bought a US division called BTC and they decided that, that they wanted to go international. So they wanted a UK division. So um, I got, it was probably more of the credibility and industry profile driver, but they kept coming to me saying, look, we want to start in the UK, complete startup within the RWE empire. So to start a new company in the UK, a subsidiary of the German organization, board director, lead the board, chief executive, start from scratch. It's you, build your team. Um, my background is sales and marketing. So I'm, I wasn't a, a general manager stroke chief exec. And I kept saying that uh, I'm not that strong on ops or I'm not that strong on finance. They said, well, well, we'll get you some good guys. Just come in and start the company. So late 2018, I went to Energy, well, which is me, uh, working in an office out of the RWE building. Uh, Npower, Npower was a sister organization. So What's RWE? Was, 
RWE are one of the major German energy companies. So right. you'd know of Eon. So mm-hmm. Eon and RWE are the two big Germans, like EDS, okay. the French one. Yeah. And here they owned Energy Renewables, and they also owned Enpower. So Enpower was part of the empire, and I started Energy Immobility UK as a wholly owned UK business that was owned by Energy Germany and in turn RWE Germany. Right. And what was that business set up to do? That business was set up to sell uh, electric vehicle hardware from head off and also software, both produced by parent company. So it was it was it was very niche. It was very much into the car dealer world and for car manufacturers. So things like we did all the Audi UK rollouts, so all the Audi UK um, dealers had uh, our hardware and software. Also, a lot. I think out of the top, out of the top six dealer groups in the UK, sorry, of the top eight dealer groups in the UK, six of them were using our hardware. So and that would be for charging the electric vehicles that they had on site. Correct. Yeah, we didn't don't, didn't do home stuff. It was more B two B, no B two C. Yeah. And you were telling me just before we started recording, Carl, that uh, things have changed again. You had a that business was sold recently. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> nice, complicated story. So we started as part of RWE. So RWE Neon, two big German companies in the same city, Essen, in Germany, mortal enemies. It's like BMW and Mercedes or, or Ford and Vauxhall. Um, and then they had a big asset swap. So energy renewables went from one to the other. And there was a huge uh, re-engineering across the German energy market. So we actually swapped just over 18 months ago. No longer RWE ownership. We were now Eon ownership. So we were owned by Eon, the, the power company. So I had to, well, in three years, I've had to twice move my team to P and change employers and everything. So it's been a great time. It's been three years of startup in this market. Um, three different owners. Um, COVID, Brexit. Um, it's been an interesting time to be the chief executive of the startup. Yeah, so then we were part of Eon. And then Eon also had Eon Drive, which is a customer solutions B2C business and some B2B. Uh, but Eon didn't really know what to do with us because we were a manufacturer. So they got approached by a lot of different companies. So in Germany, Complio, Energy, and Walby. Complio are private equity backed. They have now consolidated in Germany. So Complio, hardware and software and charging. Wallby, hardware and software and charging. Energy, the same. So Complio have bought their two biggest competitors. Right. So Complio bought the company off Eon um, in December, uh, and it's been rebranded about a week ago. So it's now Complio UK. So it sounds, Carl, like you have got closer and closer to what well, no i mean no it's not a huge, it's this pure electric it's there it, what i'm interested in and enjoying hearing about is you getting clarity on what was really important to you and you know first of all it being the the, the hummers and the cadillacs that um were, were a step too far then getting into pure electric with nissan and uh with, with the van and the leaf uh then things change they want to open that up and get your team selling public sector all makes you know all types of uh, engines but now you're very much in the, in the transition that's taking place into into electric you're firmly in the space of charging and you know hardware and software in terms of you being knocked off course 
I don't think you're going to get knocked off your electric uh, course or your sustainable course anytime soon by the sounds of that. I don't think so. But again, the other part to that is when Elon sold the company, none of the board directors could move. So so basically the, the board directors in Germany as well, they were very, very much had that bent as well. So we all had to leave because Elon wouldn't sell us effectively. So in December, um, we took a payoff from Eon. So I'm no longer on the board and no longer chief executive of energy in the UK. So Complio has sent a guy called Valentin Shelter. So Valentin's now the chief exec of what is now um, Complio UK. So obviously I'm banned from working for Complio through the settlement, et cetera. But I have now started a consultancy company which works for Complio. So I'm doing a lot of work supporting Valentin um, in his takeover of effectively, which was my my role previously. Um, I'm also doing some other consulting stuff on the outside. But the thing is, A, nothing can compete with Complio because having built a team up myself and having some of my trusted lieutenants from Nissan now being at Complio, I still have a very, very strong focus to support those guys and to make sure they're as successful as they possibly can. So I'm currently doing three days a week as an external consultant. So I'm, I'm doing all the external affairs, government affairs, but also the transition things like the office, moving the office, changing the fleet policy, things like that. I'll always stay in this area. I can't see myself going off to join a petrol or diesel company. I'll always stick in there. So at the moment, it's more really support my guys, make sure that they're happy, support the new chief exec. Um, it, it, it could be difficult when you've built up something from scratch for three years of your company than to hand over for someone. But I would say Valentin and I work really well together. So, you know, I'm trying to make his, because he's a German, so trying to come over to the UK and understand us, uh, I'm trying to make his life as easy as possible and try and make my team as successful. And, you know, if I do some things around that, that that helps them, great. But I can't see myself transitioning back into, um, so it, and I don't need to financially, I'll do what I want to do. And if it helps us with the uptake of electric vehicles or something of a sustainable bent, that's what I'm going to be doing from now on. Uh, you mentioned I'm still a young man. I'm, I'm now in my 50s, Andy. So um, I'm probably much, much closer to back end of career than the start. Mm. and did you so thank you for sharing thank you for sharing that and I'm, I'm nodding here thinking I can't see you going back into you know traditional uh, environment is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't asked you nothing that comes to mind I think I think you've asked a, a really good set of comprehensive questions um, that really have dug into the what really is a journey it's very much a journey Andy um and that's what's taken me. I think I think you've given me the, the good opportunity to flesh out each of those little points of of where I was going. Good, good. Well, in that case, it remains just for me to say thank you very much. Thanks for sharing your story and for joining me this afternoon. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Andy. Uh, thank you very much for that. And look forward to speaking to you very soon. You've been listening to Career View Mirror with me, Andy Follows. I hope you found some helpful points to reflect on in Carl's story that can help you with your own career journey or that of those you lead, parent or mentor. You are unique. And during my conversation with Carl, you will have picked up on topics that resonate with you. For me, a few elements stood out. His sliding door moment at Victoria Station, recognising that whether he turned left or right, 
would set off different chains of events. The picture of young Carl selling his first Toyota MR2 when he had no training and no experience. And as a result, he certainly didn't overthink the sales process. Having a head-on collision, a near-death experience, and how that changed his perspective permanently. How that there's more to life mindset doesn't mean you're not able to achieve. It means you're less likely to let little things get you down and allows you to be cooler under pressure. Selling Hyundai 30 years ago in Australia, or the early days of selling EVs, how much you learn when the sale is more difficult. Finding purpose along the way, and then making decisions that were aligned with it. When the sales manager suggested he was supposed to call the 5 Series customers, when he was expected to sell Escalades and Hummers, and when the EV team were expected to sell petrol and diesel to public sector. You can contact Carl via LinkedIn, and there's a link in the show notes to this episode. We publish these episodes to celebrate my guests' careers, listen to their stories, and learn from their experiences. And I'm genuinely interested in what resonated with you. If you have any comments or feedback for us, if you have any questions, or if Carl's insights have helped you, please let us know by leaving a review. Your feedback helps us grow. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or you can find the episode on our Instagram at CareerViewMirror and comment there. Thank you to all of you for sharing your feedback. Thanks also to Hannah and Julia, who, as part of the CareerViewMirror team here at Aquali, work so hard to deliver these episodes to you. Aquali is a boutique consultancy in the auto finance and mobility industry. We offer our expertise as a service, to help you design and deliver projects that develop your business and the people within it. Contact me if you'd like to know more. To be among the first to know about upcoming guests, follow us on Instagram at CareerViewMirror. And remember, folks, if you know people who would benefit from hearing these stories, please show them how to find us. Thanks for listening.